Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before, set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our text for our sermon is Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't realize that the skin of his face was shining because he had been speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, they were amazed that the skin of his face was shining, so they were afraid to come close to him. Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the rulers of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came close to him, and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses was finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out again. Then he would come out and tell the people of Israel what he had been commanded. Whenever the people of Israel saw Moses' face, they would see that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Then Moses would put a veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord again. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday, where about a month and a half before Jesus is crucified, he lets just three of his disciples go up with him, and Moses and Elijah come, and, and they give him some, some encouragement. But Jesus, for a moment, stops hiding his deity, and all that glory starts shining through. It terrifies those three disciples. But in, in the God the Father speaks, in all of that, we see Jesus was hiding his divine glory. Why? Because if he let the glory of all of his deity shine through, remember, God is perfectly holy. And he would have destroyed the Virgin Mary in her womb. He would have been like a bomb going off wherever he went, leaving sinners dead everywhere. And we're all sinners. Christ is the only human being who's never sinned because he's also God who became man. That is the law. The law shows us our sin. And lots of times we get confused and we want to show the glory of the law instead of the glory of the gospel. Now, the glory of the gospel is where we see Jesus not shining through with his deity, but hanging naked on the cross and being tortured to what appears to be to death so that he could remove your and my sins and rising again so that you and I are forgiven. That's the gospel. And, and too often it happens that human beings get confused. And Martin Luther labeled it very early on in the Reformation. I mean, shortly after he posted his 95 thesis in the Heidelberg Disputation, a theology of glory. See, the theology of glory is where you get some kind of glory. When people teach you you have to make a decision for Christ, guess what? That's a work you have to do to be saved. They're turning to the law for salvation. But the law condemns us. Or part of that theology of glory besides work is the idea you often hear today. It's called the theology of prosperity, where it's if you just throw an extra roll of cash into the offering plate, then God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, wise, and prosper you. If you want to know what a good work is, the law tells you that. But the law always accuses. It always shows your sins. So whenever somebody makes you do something that at least seems to be according to the law in order to be saved, Instead of where the gospel, the good news that Christ did all the work to save you, that he sent the Holy Spirit into your heart through um, the message of his, of his saving you. And the Holy Spirit gave you faith. And now you do the good works because you love the Lord, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. If we confuse those two, we're confusing their glory. And so today our sermon theme is don't give more glory to the law than to the gospel. 
And before we jump into our text, we have to understand its background. God had promised that the Messiah would come through a descendant, through uh, Shem's uh, descendants, and that descendant would be revealed about 400 years later in Abraham. God promised Abraham that his son, through uh, his union with his wife Sarah, uh, his son Isaac, would be the next one through whom all nations would be blessed. That's who the Savior would come. Isaac has two, or, uh, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau really doesn't care too much about the Messianic prophecy. Jacob has 12 sons. And you would think it would be through Joseph, that outstanding example of a believer. But it's through Judah whom the promise will come. Remember, David will be a descendant of Judah. And so, because Jacob's 12 sons, with the exception of Joseph, who's down in Egypt, because they are, are being so infected by the perverse religious practices in the culture of the Canaanites, God sends them down to Egypt using a plague to do that. And those 12 brothers will grow through the course of 300 to 450 years into a nation. A nation that Egypt gets afraid of, and so they, they treat them as slaves, they enslave them, and they, and they abuse them. So God uses Moses to take them out of Egypt using those plagues. And then when, he, uh, Israel, when Egypt's army pursues them, and they're, if they're not the largest and most powerful, they are definitely in the top few, a handful of armies. But God wipes out Pharaoh's army, so the Israelites will not have to look behind their back. Then the Israelites complain out in the desert. We don't have enough bread. We don't have enough meat. We don't have enough water, and God miraculously provides for them and leads them to Mount Sinai. Now, it's on Mount Sinai where God speaks the covenant. This is a law covenant because it's two-sided. The Israelites have to do their part, and God will do his part. Now, God's always faithful to his part. God spells out the Ten Commandments, and the mountain shakes, and the people tell Moses, you go talk to God for us. This is too scary. But he spells out that, he spells out the civil law and the ceremonial law. And the gist of the covenant is, you follow all these laws, and they're pretty strict. You follow them to a person, and I will keep you as a sovereign nation. The nations will flock to you to hear about the Savior, because you're going to shine out with holiness. And I, as long as you're keeping this, I will send the rains, and that land will flow with milk and honey for you. And the people say it's a deal, and God didn't have any fine print. God didn't talk behind both sides of his mouth. And then they ratify the covenant with, their, uh, with the elders. And then Moses goes up on the mountain and God carves the commandments out for him and everything. But he's gone 40 days, 40 days too long for the people. And so they make the golden calf. Now, at this time in history, if you look at, for example, the Canaanite worship of Molech or, or Baal, you'll often find these, these gods, false gods, carved riding on top of bulls or oxen or uh, calves, uh, kind of like a, a person riding on a skateboard or, or, or surfing. And, and so they make just a calf, and it seems they're probably trying to represent God, but they say, as for this Moses guy, who knows what happened to him? Now, God's talking to Moses over those 40 days, and God says, you better get down there. And when Moses comes down and sees what's going on, he literally takes those two tablets with the Ten Commandments, and he throws them on the ground because the whole Sinaitic covenant has been broken. Truly, God should wipe the people out, as he should you and I, for our sins. God says to Moses, I'm not going to lead them anymore. I'll send my angel. Moses intercedes for them. God says, okay, I'll lead them. Moses cut out two new stone tablets, and God carved the Ten Commandments into those. And that's where our text begins. 
What follows occurred when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands. Now, when Moses came down from the mountain, he did not know that the skin of his face shone on account of his speaking with the Lord. Kind of fun. The Hebrew language there is the verb for growing horns, but it's in the hiffle stem. So it's, it's beaming. It's beaming with the glory of the Lord. If you ever see any older pictures of this, though, you'll find people grew painting horns on Moses because they didn't understand it. But he's beaming with the glory of the Lord. But the amazing thing is Moses doesn't feel it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't know it. And that's something important for us. So often people, they just want to feel the love of God. So often people just don't feel forgiven. So often we all want to immediately see the fruits of our labors that can be done out of love for God and our neighbor. Moses didn't feel a face beaming forward with the glory of the Lord. Moses didn't see it happening. And that's a reminder for you and I. Lots of times uh, I have people come to me and, and, and they've, they've got a sin. They're feeling the guilt for that. They say, I just can't feel forgiven. So, well, your feelings have nothing to do with it. God in his word promises you your sin is forgiven. Either by the faith he's given you, you're going to trust him or not. Don't let your feelings become a hindrance to that. And I've said it before, it's amazed me how often, sometimes even when I was a teenager or sometimes even younger, where I got, had the opportunity to share the good news of salvation with Christ, to share the gospel, the freedom that comes in God and the forgiveness and the eternal life. And I didn't get to see the results. And then often 20 years later, you bump into that same person and lo and behold, they're a believer. What happened? Well, God may have been using me to plant the seed. He may have been using me to water a seed that was already planted, but he sent others to continue watering it and nourishing it. Christians often get confused and they think that the worship of God is something they need to fill or be able to intellectualize. It's hearing God's word and by faith saying, amen, those promises are for me. So we got to be careful. And certainly pastors can preach sermons that can put us, bore us to tears. And it would be really sad, for example, on Easter if we sing our hymns like we were singing a funeral dirge. But too often people think that they're worshiping God if they just get whipped up by their music and their emotions. They can feel it. Well, as we used to say with kids eating too much sugar, what comes up must come down. And when, they, when, when their feelings start to go, they don't feel like they're Christians. So here we got to recognize not confusing the glory of the law with the gospel. That First of all, the, the glory of either one of them is not always felt. And we often do not see it in us. But just like with Moses, God was definitely at work. In that particular case, people would rejected Moses as God's spokesman. When Moses would show up with his face gleam, beaming out with the glory of the Lord, they'd say, uh, he did come as God's messenger. So we're told in verse 30, Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, and noticed the shocking surprise. The skin of Moses' face shone, and so they were afraid of coming near him. Then Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders among the congregation returned to him. Then Moses spoke to them. And afterwards, all the sons of Israel drew themselves near. Then Moses gave all the commands to them that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. See what happens? They're not even getting to look directly at the glory of the Lord. They're seeing an alien glory, God's glory, shining off of Moses' face. And it terrifies them. That's a lesson for us because God's law is holy. It is good. It is glorious. But if you're a sinner, it's terrifying. When Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord pretty much said, you can only see a passing glimpse of it because no, no sinner can look at my glory and live. 
Isaiah himself discovered this when he was taken up before the throne of God. What does he say? Woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and I live with a pack of sinners. But God, in the glory of his gospel, sends an angel to come and touch his lips with the coal from off of that altar and tells him his sins are forgiven. The glory of the law is terrifying. The glory of the gospel, the good news that Christ did all the work to save you and he sent the Holy Spirit working through that message. So to give you faith and strengthen that faith, that's soothing. Martin Luther had a beautiful analogy of this, but beautiful, so beautiful to him. In the days when teachers used to be able to beat students with yardsticks and sometimes those, that discipline was needed. We don't allow it at all today. But in Martin Luther's day, he had a teacher who, if you didn't get the answer right, maybe you're nervous because you're going to get beat, he would beat them. So Martin Luther used the analogy of the law. It's like that teacher in the room standing there with the yardstick, ready to swat the first kid who blinks wrong. But what happens when the teacher leaves the room? The students go, whew. And what happens then when they let their hair down? Well, Sometimes, as the, as the country song saying, I need a little time off for bad behavior. They've been, they've been walking on, on thin ice, if you will, for so long that they go the opposite direction. This is a reminder for us. Aaron and those looking at Moses, they were terrified. And it's a reminder for us uh, when we want to use the law to motivate people to do things. For example, we need a Sunday school teacher. If one of you doesn't volunteer, then we're going to insert whatever law. Or you're not a believer. Not, not everybody's gifted, for example, to be a Sunday school teacher. And sometimes some people will end up stepping forward saying the, the children need a Sunday school teacher. And I'm not going to be the best, but I'll do the best I can. And that's where the gospel comes in soothing them. God will work through you. But I, I've served people who think, well, I have to do this or else I don't love God. That's not even the law itself. That's a misapplication of the law. Or when people talk church council and stuff, those are volunteers. They don't get paid. And when people turn around and say, it's their job to do this. And it's, no, if you don't like the timetable in which they're volunteering on, then don't swing the, 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 that yardstick of the law at them. Then you volunteer to do it or volunteer to pay a professional who will get it done within your time frame. We have to remember that the glory of the law, and it is glorious, it's terrifying. But the glory of the gospel, when it comes to us, it's soothing, it's forgiving, it's empowering. It gives us the new person who is connected to Christ. And because that person is connected to Christ, as Martin Luther said, you don't have to tell the sun to shine. That's what God designed it to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit has made your new person to do. Now, we then use the law because we want to know what a good work is. For example, during the Reformation, there were people who thought it was good to abandon their families and join monasteries and maybe beat themselves. God's Ten Commandments never call that a good work. In other words, because it isn't. But when we have that, that gospel, when we have that new person that's connected to Christ, he naturally grows those fruit. And the law says, oh, look, you love the Lord, so you're hearing his word. You love to hear his word. Sadly, the law always accuses, though, because we always have a sinful nature, and then it turns around and says, but you're not listening to it perfectly. So, don't give more glory to the law than to the gospel. The glory of the law is terrifying. But the glory of the gospel, it's soothing. It forgives. It empowers. It removes our sin. We're told in verse 33, after Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses came before the Lord in order to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he went out. Then he would go out and he would speak to the sons of Israel, whatever was being commanded. 
And so the sons of Israel would see Moses' face, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And then Moses would return the veil over his face until whenever he would come in order to speak with the Lord. The people would see Moses' face shining out when he had spoke with the Lord. And that would be a strong message to them. It's a reminder to us. The message was, this is God's spokesman and he's speaking the word of God. But it's a reminder to us, when when we're sent to proclaim the word of God, we dare not act like cult leaders, like we have a monopoly on it. And we are not allowed to misteach that word. We are to correctly teach it. But Moses, when he was done, the people would be terrified. They wouldn't come near him, so he had to put a veil over his face. The apostle Paul talks about this and tells us that it was a fading glory. The glory of the lost terrifying, it has to be covered up. It can only be viewed momentarily. Jesus momentarily allowed the glory of his deity to be seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. But if you want to know the glory of the gospel, it's hidden from the world's eyes, yet it's held out right before them. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, it is the God-man not using all of his deity, not getting revenge, praying for those who have tried what they think is a railroad job to murder him, and hanging there on the cross, being spit upon, rivaled, and bleeding out. That's the gospel. For he lived his life perfectly for you and I, and he died taking on the punishment you and I sins deserve so that he could remove them and he rose so that he's ruling over creation for us. The glory of the law can be viewed only momentarily. The glory of the gospel, it's hidden. But when it's revealed to you, when God gives you the faith to see it through the eyes of your new person, that new person that's connected to Jesus, it gives eternal life. It gives salvation. It gives the forgiveness of sins. And again, this is why then we do things like good works. We say, you know, the Lord has given so much to me. He loves me so much. And it's not a guilt trip like, therefore, I better love him back. No, 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 no. It's that his love is now in us in the new person. And so we recognize, for example, God has given me in abundance. Now I want to return things. So we give offerings not to support some some cult-like leader but simply to to return thanks for everything God provides for us. And we're willing to do things like teach in Sunday school, serve on council. We're willing to put aside our need to dictate to others, and we're willing to be servants because of the fruit of that new person that has come through the gospel, which Jesus Christ won for us. Yes, the glory of the law can can be viewed only momentarily, The glory of the gospel is hidden, but when it's revealed, it is eternal. It gives you God's love. It gives you forgiveness, salvation. And so on Transfiguration Sunday, those three disciples got to see a glimpse of Jesus' glory. It wouldn't make sense to them until they saw him after he rose, until they saw the gospel unfold before their eyes when he hangs there on the cross. Next week, we start our trip through the Lent series And as we look at our sins, always remember, don't give more glory to the law than to the gospel. The glory of the law is terrifying. The glory of the gospel is soothing. Oftentimes the glory is not felt, and we don't even see it. But God is at work through us. And the glory of the law can only be viewed momentarily. The glory of the gospel is hidden, but when revealed, it gives us God's love. It gives us forgiveness. It gives us salvation. It gives us eternal life. Amen. And now grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen.